Welcome to another episode of Congo Kids Life Stories, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. I've had numerous jobs and positions and titles in my working career. I've been a landscaper, a grave digger, a machine shop worker, a grill man at a fast food place. Boy, could I wield a spatula with seven rows of seven hamburgers going at once. Also been a painter, a general construction worker, a school teacher, an accountant, a property manager, an internal auditor, a real estate broker, a senior vice president, a real estate acquisitions guy, a leasing director, a financial analyst, an underwriter, a furniture refinisher, a truck driver, I'm also a wannabe podcaster, and a gopher. A gopher, you ask? You mean those little critters that tear up one's yard or golf course? Like the infamous 1980s classic movie Caddyshack, where the gopher is the nemesis of Carl, the groundskeeper, played by Bill Murray. Well, no, not really. But it's a play on words, sort of. Gopher. G-O-F-E-R, as in go for this and go for that. And I must say, of all the jobs and titles I've had, this being a gopher ranks way up there of being the most fun, most adventurous, and filled with memories and harrowing experiences. Being a gopher was one of the most fulfilling positions I've held and suited my personality almost to a T. So what is exactly a gopher? And more specifically, what is or was the Gemina Gopher, which is the title of this episode? Well, Gemina was the city where I spent most of my junior high and high school years while living in Zaire, also known as DR Congo, back in the 1970s and early 1980s. It was the largest city in the area and had about 100,000 people living there at the time. It was a hub for commerce and business and it even had the only bank in the entire region. In the 1970s, the airport was expanded and modernized, so commercial planes frequented Gemina, usually Air Zaire. It was also a hub for our mission airplane in its routes, specifically when it flew in and out of the country to Bangui in the Central African Republic, which was about 160 miles away, as immigration and passport issues were handled at Gemina. There were stores in Gemina that often carried sugar, flour, and other staples that supplied the nearby mission stations when the Congo River was full in the rainy season and the barges could come up the river bringing supplies. The gopher was the person that was assigned to run errands, purchase supplies, haul freight, handle passports and immigration, and do pretty much anything to support the career missionaries from having to deal with these administrative tasks and errands. They were busy being doctors, nurses, pastors, school teachers, and other things. It was a very important job and involved organization, relationship building, negotiation, lots of travel, a bit of schmoozing, and learning how to load a truck. 
1982, I was wrapping up my sophomore year in college and had burned through all my savings and didn't have the funds to go back my junior year. Also, I'd been taking general courses to get those out of the way and wasn't sure what major to choose, and I needed to decide that very soon. So, with these two roadblocks, I decided to, what they call, stop out for a year to figure out my future and save some money so I could finish school. I applied to be a short-term missionary with the same mission board that my folks were with and returned to Zaire to be the Gimana Gopher and also teach school at the local high school where my dad was teaching. At the time, Congo was called Zaire, so you may hear Zaire and Congo being used interchangeably in this episode. I visited numerous churches and reached out to family and friends to raise support And in the summer of 1982, after working at a cemetery for minimum wage, digging graves all summer, I returned to Zaire. I believe my salary was $592 per month. I'd purchased a red 1980 XL250S four-stroke Honda motorcycle the summer before I went to Africa in 1982 and had it shipped to Bangui, Central African Republic, right across the border from Zongo on the Zaire-Congo side. It arrived before I did, and unfortunately, a bushing for the front axle had fallen out of the crate, and I think Paul Noren had picked it up, but forgot it in his pocket and took it home, so the Honda wasn't rideable. However, Gene Bradford had a similar Honda motorcycle, so he sent his axle bushing to Bangui for my arrival. I crossed the border, installed the bushing, and started up my motorcycle. I was on my way to Gemina, 160 miles away, with my suitcases following in a truck. What an exhilarating way to start my year. Zooming through villages and on dirt roads for seven hours on my new motorcycle. And man, was that bike ever big and fast. I recall turning the corner about 200 yards of a straight shot to my parents' house. It was just getting dark. They were both outside waiting for me. I goosed it to about 50 miles per hour and about 30 yards away hit the rear brake and skidded to a stop. I'd arrived. Wow. The adrenaline was pumping, and I was exhilarated after my long trip from the U.S. and now my trip from Zongo to Gemina. I was home and ready to start my year. Gemina was home, where I'd grown up, but this time I had a job, was in the capacity as an adult, and would be starting the busiest, most adventurous year of my life. I sort of knew what to expect but balancing two days a week teaching and running around the entire region on a motorcycle or truck was going to push me to the limits. I had my own little apartment, but ate meals with my folks, and my mom was gracious enough to even do my laundry. I paid them a monthly amount for board, but otherwise was an adult and on my own with responsibilities as a professor in the high school, Institute Chemia. I taught chemistry and English, My French was a bit rusty, but soon enough I was teaching 60 kids in each of my classes about atoms and molecules, doing chemistry experiments, and teaching them the similarities and differences in grammar and vocabulary between French and English. But besides being a high school professor, the other main responsibility was being the gopher. 
Every time the plane came, usually two or three times a week, I was there to meet it and help with visas and immigration, hauling the cargo, and negotiating with the customs agent if stuff was being brought in from outside the country. Or I was there dropping folks off to catch the plane to somewhere or picking them up for their visit in Gemini. The other dimensions included shopping when the stores were stocked, hauling freight, hauling people from one station to another, and so on. Our mission often had young adults come to Zaire and Congo for a one- or two-year short-term mission trip to help in various capacities. These included teachers, mechanics, and sometimes the gopher. I had a huge advantage over these folks as I'd grown up there, was already known, spoke French and Lingala fluently, so I could get around with government officials. I also knew the culture and had experienced road trips and living conditions, so knew what to expect in that regard. I was a local. However, there was a transition that was needed on my part. I'd left two years prior as a newly graduated high school senior and was just a kid. I had minimal responsibilities then and always had my parents to deal with the business side of life and living. Now, a mere two years later, I was 20 years old and was stepping into an adult role with the authority and, more importantly, the responsibility that went with being an adult. I had to represent the mission appropriately, and people now counted on me to deliver. I had two jobs, a gopher and a high school professor, with two classes and 60 kids in each one, that had to do lesson plans, teach, grade tests, and all that went with that. I've asked Thelma Landrud, a retired nurse that served in Congo for 43 years and knew me growing up, to share about her viewpoint as a career missionary in recognizing me as a kid now returning as an adult, and to be in the support capacity as a gopher. What I thought of when he asked that question was, we were such a small group of people, and we all depended on each other for whatever we did. And you couldn't be a very independent soul if you were in Congo for very long and still have a role, because we depended on each other, My thing was I loved when we had short-term gophers because it meant I didn't have to do some of the things that they were able to do. They couldn't do some of the things I did, but then they were able to do them and I was freed up to do the things that I could do. And it was not just the gophers, it was the other short-termers too. I must say that right away, the paradigm shift of calling the other adult missionaries Uncle So-and-So and Aunt So-and-So was a difficult thing to change. All my life, I'd referred to my parents' peers with the respectful moniker, uncle or aunt. Now, what to do? As I was still a kid, sort of, and yet was a contemporary as an adult. One person that I remember most clearly and made a huge impact on me immediately was Alita Wester. Shortly after arrival, I was talking to Aunt Alita and Uncle Merle Wester about something. When Alita said... Jeff, you're an adult now. You don't have to say aunt or uncle. You have our permission to call us Alita and Merle. Though that may seem minor, it was a recognition of my stepping out of being a youth and into acceptance as an adult. Though not a formal rite of passage, her saying that to me was very impactful and was an emotional turning point for me in my journey to maturity and adulthood. 
It was 41 years ago that you said that, Alita, and I still remember. And by the way, when my son's friends from high school graduated from college some years ago, I copied what you did and told each of them, Brandon, Stephen, Will, Mark, Michael, and a few others, that they didn't have to call me Mr. Eels anymore, but could call me Jeff. Thank you, Alita. You don't realize how impactful that was to me. The job as gopher was physically tough, and often the gopher was a default choice to make a run to Akula, the river port, to pick up fuel or freight. Or, if big containers were arriving by boat in the Central African Republic right across the border, I'd drive the day to day and a half up there to get these containers of equipment and supplies across the river and through immigration. Or, if a group of people needed transporting to another mission station, the gopher was the guy to drive them there. Though I was going to be doing a lot of the lousier functions of driving all over, loading and unloading trucks with supplies, fuel, and freight or household items, I tried to remember that I was now part of the mission effort. While some folks were teaching and preaching and serving in hospitals, the machine of running the mission did depend on my role. So I never felt I was drawing the short straw or had gotten the crummy duty instead of another person. Thelma elaborates on how a career missionary regarded us short-term gophers. I did not personally take it that way because, as I said before, we were working together and what the short-termers did left us able to do what we were doing without the interruptions that it would have made. Because if you guys hadn't been there, we'd have had to do some of that stuff. And we did when you weren't there. So we appreciated, I appreciated when they were there because it left me time to do the things that I was trained to do. I've asked Jim Aiken, a childhood friend of mine, who served for two years as a gopher in Bangui, Central African Republic, in the mid-1980s, to share his job description. Though not in Congo, his role in Bangui, which was a modern city, was similar to mine. It had considerable supplies for purchase and was a main entry point from the U.S. and Europe for missionary travelers. There's the golden question. Job description. CAR was a brand new hosting. We had been hosted there by the Brethren for so long, and then the Free Church and the Covenant co-bought the property adjacent to and behind the Brethren mission. So I went there to help build a guest house so that we could host our own people. And I went there to help facilitate the crossing of containers for medical supplies and people landing and taking off from Bangui, as that was at that time the main port of entry and exit into the Congo, about 300 people a year. I asked Jim if he felt taken for granted, as he was often tasked with doing the undesirable duty and challenging things. I don't know that I would ever say that I felt taken for granted, except if that were interpreted as being not really thought about in the grand scheme of things. To a certain degree, from that standpoint, yes, but that was also the role that I accepted to play because uh, at the time, the, the people there with me or overseeing me were David and Karen Oldberg. So 
partly, Jeff, too, I'd have to define the role that I did there in terms of I didn't not value myself or feel that people didn't value me because, dude, man, I was their link to chocolate bars and cheese and all the good stuff that people wanted shipped down to them from Bangui. So I was always pretty valued. I got nice letters from people, <laughs> if I can put it that way. But, you know, when it came to doing, yeah, when it came to doing the midnight runs and when it came to doing cargo runs across to Zongo, sometimes that got a little old, but not usually. Uh, I enjoyed it. You know, it was always the challenge of it. I concur with Jim in that this life of adventure and hard duty is what we'd signed up for. Our job was to handle the stuff that was needed behind the scenes that took considerable time so that the career missionaries could focus on their ministries. Also, due to our youth, we had more physical stamina and energy for the pace of the long trips and physical endurance often needed to get the job done. Now, in my 60s, I look back and realize there's no way I could do now what I did in my year as a gopher. Some of the stuff we did was boring and included lots of waiting around or lots of running around. Sometimes the trip or event became a big adventure, though usually unplanned. Here's an event that should have taken half a day and ended up being four days for Jim. Had a container, really heavy container that had medical equipment and supplies in it. Dry season, the barge that we loaded it on in Bangui, could not get close enough to anything except the sandbar that grew halfway across the Zaire side of the river. So the guy dropped us on the hard sand, not a problem. I had a guy with me and he was a short-termer and he hadn't been out very long, but I put him in the cab to drive it. And I said, dude, stay on the wet sand. And if you feel anything start to sink, gun it. It was one of those, you remember those uh, six-wheel drive army trucks? 12-wheel drive, really. This thing was massive. Well, he felt it start to sink, and he'd get off, he let off the gas, and we just, he just buried that thing up to the hubs in the, in the quicksand where water was flowing under the sand. So we dug our way out. We made it another 1,500 meters, but we were, still, we were still a third of the way to get across the river and up onto shore. I, on the other hand, was another four days getting out of the river, out of customs, and to Tandala with that container truck. So it was a total six-day trip to get from Zongo across, with three of the days spent digging out, driving, digging out, driving, digging out, driving. But it was okay. You know, I, I have to admit, it was, it was the challenge that was fun. Right. So that was my best adventures. My most epic trip and adventure was flying from Bangui to Douala, Cameroon, and driving a truck back with John Curl. Several days of driving, narrowly avoiding getting tossed in jail for passport issues, crossing the border to get a motorcycle only to find it with a flat tire, then getting it fixed and driving till midnight to cross a river in a dugout canoe, and finally arriving at my destination at 5 a.m. By the way... You can listen to that entire story by clicking on episode two on my website. That was an adventure I'll never forget. But most trips were not as grandiose as my Cameroon trip. 
most involved driving several hours from one mission station to another, hauling people or freight. It was dusty, muddy, dirty, hot, and tiring. Stuff could and would happen. Flat tires, river ferries that didn't work, mechanical issues, getting stuck in the mud, or having stuck trucks ahead of you preventing you from proceeding so you'd spend the night in the village, and so on, and so on, and so forth. As an example, once I left at 4.30 a.m., drove three hours to Akula, which was a port on the Mongala River to the south of us, to get barrels of fuel and propane tanks. They were on the other side, so I crossed over in a dugout canoe and handled the paperwork to release everything. Unfortunately, the ferry was on the fritz, so I had to hire five or six young men with big dugout canoes to load the 55-gallon barrels of diesel and gasoline and a bunch of propane tanks, paddle across the river, and then roll them up the bank and load into my three-and-a-half-ton freight truck. The river was about a quarter of a mile across. Well, two of my hired transporters overloaded their canoes, and halfway across the river, they tipped over, and my fuel, $3,000 worth, was in the drink, floating downstream. I yelled at them as I was paddling my own canoe that they better retrieve all the barrels and to meet me on the other side. Thankfully, they were honorable, and all the barrels eventually showed up on the riverbank. So, I got my truck loaded and returned to Gemina that afternoon. What a day it was. Yet, it wasn't an unusual day. My main vehicle for running around was either my motorcycle or the mission cargo truck. It was a Savien brand, French-made, with a big box on it, and dualies. It sort of was, quote, mine, unquote, for the year when asked to pick up loads or move a family from Mission Station A to Mission Station B. The mission wanted to buy a bigger 8-ton truck for me to be the main chauffeur of, but that didn't materialize before I left. I did drive numerous other trucks and was known as a pretty good driver by the end of the year that could navigate most sand pits and mud holes safely. Even if others were in a group on a trip, I was usually asked to drive if we were facing rain and mud and challenging roads. Being the chauffeur meant I called the shots for the trip. When I said we were leaving at 6 a.m. for a truck trip, that meant I showed up at 5.30, we were loaded, and on the road at 5.55 a.m. Some of my passengers weren't too happy, and they'd say, I thought you were showing up at 6 a.m. To which I'd respond, I said we were leaving at 6 a.m., and I warn you that I always leave early. But hey, I was a chauffeur, so it was my rules. Another fun thing was that I'd bought a green canvas army cowboy hat and always wore that when driving a truck. The sides of the hat snapped up. That was my trademark look when driving all over. Yeah, I looked cool. And I was cool. I had a realistic brand cassette tape player that ran off of a motorcycle battery. I also had a Jensen car stereo speaker that I'd mounted into a wooden box, so that stereo system was often in the cab with me. Floor space in the cab for this was a priority when I was driving. Here I was, 20 years old, on an adventure, driving on dirt roads, hauling people or freight in the heart of Congo through jungles and villages, blasting some awesome 1980s rock and roll on the stereo. Everything about those moments was awesome. 
Life was great. I mean, what's not to like for a guy like me? How could it get any better? Besides hauling people in freight or driving all over the place, another key task was meeting the airplane. This meant picking up folks, delivering folks to the airport, processing the immigration paperwork, securing visas, and negotiating for customs on items being brought into the country. I played the long game with the airport officials, immigration agents, and custom agents. I knew that over the year, I'd be having to pony up full customs fees on certain items and also would be able to get stuff through for free or at a discount. Everybody knew me in the region. The guy with the green cowboy hat or the cool black helmet, goggles, and face mask on the red Honda motorcycle. Thus, I developed a relationship with everyone, and being a local that spoke the language and somewhat of a ham and jokester, my personality boded well for that role. Jim had the same approach and shares how he often spent his time while waiting for a plane to land at Bangui, Central African Republic. You know, for me, staying up till 3 a.m. and then 4 a.m. and then 5 a.m. because uh, Air Petetra wasn't going to make it on time into Bangui wasn't a big deal. I sometimes stayed up all night out there at the airport. Out of the airport, I would literally sit for hours with the uh, presidential guard and play cards because no one else was at the airport. It wasn't real popular if I made multiple trips out to the airport because I had to charge mileage. And, and that was quite a chunk of mileage. So, you know, if people got two or three charges because we just went back and forth, that was pretty unpopular. Uh, so I'd camp out there and play cards with the guards. But that also earned the right to get a badge and access the back areas of the, the airport. And it didn't hurt with uh, getting my people through customs and, and uh, you know, immigration and on the road. Probably my most memorable customs negotiation was in Gemina, handling the personal effects of an older missionary couple who should remain nameless to protect the guilty. They'd arrived a few days earlier, and now their luggage had arrived on the plane and needed to go through customs. Into a room we went with five or six suitcases and duffel bags. I argued that it was all personal effects, but the agent insisted going through it all as he wanted to find cameras, tape recorders, equipment, and anything else he could charge customs on. I wasn't keen on pawing through someone else's personal stuff, but didn't have a choice. I didn't know what to expect, and though awkward, we began to open up everything. Shirts, shoes, pants, and other odds and ends started to pile up. These were all deemed personal effects, so would go through with no issues. Partway through, the customs agent found the electrical cord and plug for an electric fry pan. He kept saying, Aparei ezaliawa. There's an apparatus here somewhere as he wanted to charge customs on that since it qualified. I knew what it was for, but he didn't. In the next suitcase, I saw the electric skillet wrapped in a shirt, so I grabbed it. I lifted the lid and then immediately slammed it shut and told the guy I couldn't look any further as it was private. Well, the ladies' panties and other unmentionables were in there. So I feigned embarrassment and insisted this was very private, personal women's stuff, and he nor I had any business looking inside. He didn't realize then that I was holding the skillet, but had I removed everything, he'd have figured it out. 
After more theatrics on my part about respecting a lady's privacy and feigning embarrassment, he acquiesced and we moved on. Though he did keep mumbling about the appliance that went with the plug. He then found seven cans of hairspray at $5.99 each. He set these aside and confirmed his fee sheet. Hmm, 200% is what he wanted to charge as these were under the category of perfume and cosmetics. My mind started racing to figure out how to get out of paying 84 bucks. We finished going through everything and so it was time to address the hairspray. So I told him that one dimension of being Caucasian was having uncontrollable hair as I had to constantly comb my hair throughout the day as it would blow around in the wind. A royal pain indeed. Yet he only combed his hair once in the morning. So I made a big deal about the lady who had brought these cans of hairspray, how she was an elegant and well put together lady, and as such, used these cans of hairspray to keep her hair in one place all day. I really shoveled it on about the challenge of keeping our hair combed properly and this poor woman who needed the hairspray to look presentable. He laughed at that and let all the stuff go through with no customs fees. Oh, and he never found out what the cord plugged into. So while gophers were often relegated to the traveling, loading trucks, driving all over, and generally tough duty, we knew we were part of the team to further the work of the mission. And it was especially fulfilling knowing that the career missionaries appreciated our efforts. I do believe that coming into the job speaking French and Lingala and having grown up there gave a huge advantage. I appreciated the fact that you guys came back because you had a much easier time of it than somebody who came who hadn't grown up there. You knew the language, you knew the culture. And when you were there, it was much easier dealing with asking you to do something because you knew a little bit more about it. It was less explaining than some of the other gophers or short-termers who came without that perspective. And I think because we were a small group, we were appreciated each one for what we could do. And I was Aunt Thelma and am still Aunt Thelma to a lot of you kids, even though I used to say, when you get finished with college and come back, you can just call me Thelma, but most of you didn't. <laughs> and I think that showed a respect for each of us back and forth. Jim's background growing up in Congo played a huge part for him in succeeding in the position as well. Just knowing Lingala and being able to go over and, and shoot the breeze with the customs and immigration guys in Zongo uh, while they're trying to skin you alive on a, on a container of hospital goods that technically attracts zero customs it, it was huge. And French, French in, uh, in CAR was a, was a huge benefit. But uh, yeah, sitting in an official's office in Bangui waiting for the guy to actually appear to work and his is the last signature of like seven to get something released and you're sitting there for three or four days and literally you're sitting there because if you leave he wins if you just sit there and wait him out which happened several times he'll eventually or she'll eventually come out and say you're still here okay what's yours sign it and you're on your way but you didn't, you didn't just pick that up. You know, that was just, that for me was part of the culture of getting things done. And I learned that, yes, growing up out there. 
gym in Bangui, where he was able to do considerable shopping, met numerous folks at the airport, and got tons of supplies, equipment, and luggage across the border and through customs, shares how he felt he contributed. I suppose the way it was mostly expressed was people would write a note up to me or to us up there and say, hey, we really appreciate you and we thank you for doing all this work. You know, we we knew that we were doing something that kept the doctors away from having to come argue for clearing their medicines in free or having to fly down to Kinshasa to get, you know, a Kitus to to have the stuff come in. We took care of it. We, We handled it. We made it happen. For me, I gained fulfillment when I was able to secure sugar or flour when there was none to be had in the stores, but I had a relationship with another vendor, thus ensuring the outposts had these staples. Also, getting to meet and welcome so many people at the airport when they were coming or going. Often, I was the first person in Zaire visitors met, and being able to help them with passports, visas, and immigration was very fulfilling. But knowing how hard I was working meant that my parents, the doctors and nurses, the builders, the pastors, and others that had raised support and were dedicating their lives to the mission work could do what they were called to do. I was a cog in the wheel of the machine that kept the mission work going. Every hour on the road to haul fuel or freight was one more hour the doctor could be in surgery, the pastor could be preaching, or the teacher teaching in their ministries. I grew up that year arriving as a 20-year-old kid and leaving as a 21-year-old man. I'd handled tens of thousands of dollars of purchases, coordinated and hauled hundreds of tons of freight, loaded more trucks than I could count, driven over 8,000 miles in trucks or motorcycles all over northwest Zaire on dirt roads, including an epic trip from Cameroon, West Africa. I had logistic responsibilities and people depended on me for food, fuel, and chauffeuring them safely from one place to another. I learned how to pack a truck. I've loaded more trucks than I care to remember. And even now, when helping someone move, I default to being in charge of loading the U-Haul. Why? Because I got a PhD in loading freight that year. I learned to coordinate being a school teacher and balancing numerous appointments and having to adjust my schedule, often at the drop of a hat. I learned to accept when stuff happened, as unplanned surprises happen on a trip in Central Africa, and there's often nothing you can do about it. Once, I was at Tandala and was enjoying playing card games with my girlfriend and a few other folks after supper. About 9 p.m., someone came and said, Hey Jeff, sorry to do this, but Pastor Kwanga Fuku decided to return to Gemina tonight instead of tomorrow afternoon. I'll fill up the fuel tank while you get your stuff. What? That didn't make me happy, but alas, I had to do it. So off we went. Then, about 10 miles outside of Gemina, at midnight, the fuel tank ran dry. The screw on the fuel filter had come off, and the whole tank of fuel had drained onto the road over the previous two hours of driving. Fortunately, I had a small jug of diesel with me on the truck. And with the help of a small stick that I whittled down, to insert into the screw hole, and a big elephant ear leaf that I used to act as a funnel, I got enough fuel into the tank to make it home. While many missionary kids did return to Congo after a few years of college or after completing college to be short-termers, most of the experiences were positive. 
But it wasn't always that way, as sometimes it was crummy duty. Jim explains. I think the one thing I would say from just seeing some other short-termers do well and not do well is it's like a lot of things in life. You get what you put into it. You get out what you put into it. I would suggest that you and I, having grown up there, had the leg up and we we perhaps were able to dive into it quicker and thus make more of it. There were others where I think they truly hated every minute that they were out there doing it. You know, no names, no no nothing, but just it was not it was not what they at all even thought they were getting into. Both Jim and I completed our tenure with positive memories and experiences, even if it was hard work, long hours, physically demanding, and included lots of waiting around. We knew we were contributing to the effort, and we both approached the work with a sense of adventure and knowing we were contributing to a cause bigger than ourselves. So for one year of my life, I was a gopher. In fact, I was so proud of that fact that I had a friend make me an official ink stamp, which I've put up on my website. So check that out. It's a circle with Gimena Gophers ink on the top and a Honda motorcycle in the middle. Furthermore, Bruce Fleming even got me a shirt that said, Official Zairean Gopher. I wore it with pride. I had that shirt for many years, and now my daughter has it. I think she's using it for painting. Boy, is that total sacrilege. But still has it. It should be framed and hanging on a wall, but oh well. I look back with fond memories as my gophering role being a pivotal year in helping me figure out who I was, helped me grow up, taught me problem solving, and helped me see the mission work through my parents' eyes. It was filled with adventure, fun, and numerous relationships that I still have today. The experience also helped me maintain a perspective of being on a team and regardless of my role, to focus on the greater good. I remember upon my return to the U.S. in 1983 that some of my friends from college commented to me that I'd changed. I had. I was more mellow, more focused, more team-oriented, more mature, and more service-oriented. I viewed life differently. I'd experienced adulthood without being a student. I had grown up. A lot. So next time you hear someone say that they're a gopher, you will understand what the role is and hopefully appreciate more how important that role is to a business or mission effort. Gophers keep the machine running. And for one year in the early 1980s, for our mission effort in Zaire, I proudly wore the title as the Gemina Gopher. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will listen again. Other podcasts and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Congo Kids Life Stories are also posted on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I will send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.